Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of my new podcast, True Crime Breakdown. I'm your host, Sean Mack. I plan to do a deep dive into each case, not just to tell the story. Now, there are a lot of great podcasts that do that already. What I will be doing is to break apart the case and try to come up with a solution based on facts, not rumors and innuendo. So without further ado, let's start the breakdown. The clues are tantalizing. A sporty red car. A speck of cigarette ash. A battered hard drive. It is a mystery. It absolutely is a mystery. But what do these clues say about the sudden disappearance of the district attorney who left them behind? It's baffling. It's confusing and uh, perplexing. It's all of those things. His name is Ray Guicar. When he vanished in 2005, it was a big story. The prosecutor in Pennsylvania who vanished on Friday is still missing. Ray Greekar was the district attorney in the picture-perfect small town of Bellefonte, located in Center County, Pennsylvania. With the powerful presence of Penn State University just around the bend, Ray had prosecuted his share of offenders from all walks of life. While relying on his past experience as a DA for Cleveland's Cuyahoga County, where he specialized mainly in violent crimes, there wasn't much in the way of cases that Ray hadn't seen. Back in April of 2005, Ray had served the better part of five terms and racked up a solid reputation. People at the courthouse described him as pleasant to work with, not overly friendly, not really a people person, but not standoffish either. One co-worker said he was always polite and respectful, but never chatty, someone who kept his private matters private. And regarding his private life, Ray seemed to have everything going for him. Yeah, he had been divorced twice before, but now he was living with his long-term girlfriend, Patty Fornicola, and he seemed very happy. They regularly worked out together at the local gym and would go out for dinner a few times a week. Ray's health was great, he had no money worries, and he was making in the low six figures as the county DA. Ray had one child from an earlier marriage, the 27-year-old Lara, and even though she lived all the way in Washington State, they had a close relationship and stayed in touch, talking often by phone. Ray turned 59 that spring and was just eight months away from retirement, a retirement he was really looking forward to. He actually had a countdown clock that he would share with his coworkers as he left for the day. Just 241 more days, he would say with a smile as he headed out the door. He was cutting back on the number of cases he handled and was making plans with his girlfriend, Patty, to drive cross-country in his treasured red Mini Cooper. They were going to see the sights, visit the national parks, and drop in on his daughter in Washington. His retirement was going to be great, and Ray could hardly wait. On the morning of April 15, 2005, Ray woke up and told Patty he was going to take a half day. She wasn't surprised as he had done this before. She asked him to call her at work if it was going to be more than a half day so she would know to stop home and let out their dog. Ray said he would and went back to sleep. Patty left for work and headed to the courthouse where she was employed as a clerk. Ray called the courthouse at 11.30 and Patty answered the phone. Ray tells her he has taken his Mini Cooper for a drive on the country roads and is on Highway 92 headed east towards Lewisburg. Now remember the statement, it will become important later, and he will be taking the rest of the day off. Now, this in itself is not that unusual, as Ray was known to take drives in his car for fun quite often. Ray told Patty he loved her, and Patty said, I love you back. According to the police interview that Patty later gave, she is quoted as saying she felt he sounded totally natural and normal on the call. At 5 p.m., Patty returns home to her apartment after work and notices that Ray is not there. Now, she thinks that maybe he had decided to go on a longer drive than usual. She dials his cell phone, and it goes straight to voicemail. 
Now, still, she's not yet alarmed, so she changes and heads to the gym. Now, this, by all accounts, is her normal daily routine. Since it was a Friday, Patty and Ray would regularly go to dinner together at the Gamble Mill Inn. But as he wasn't home yet, she figured he'd probably stop for a bite on the way home from his drive. Patty returns home from the gym at 8.30 p.m., and still, no Ray. She begins calling his cell phone over and over, and each time it goes straight to voicemail. Patty begins to get concerned. This is not like Ray at all. Starting to get really worried, Patty calls her brother Tom. He tries to calm her and tells her to wait, that maybe Ray's phone battery was dead, and that he is on his way home and will show up soon. Patty waits until 11.30 p.m., and frantic with worry, calls the Bellefonte Police Department and officially reports Ray missing. Since Ray is well known to the police, as the county DA, they waste no time and relay the information to the chief of police, Dwayne Dixon. He then sends out a message to the surrounding counties to be on the lookout for Ray and his red Mini Cooper. When Patty Fornicola woke up the next day on April 16th, her whole world had changed. Ray had not come home all night, calls to his cell phone were still going to voicemail, and the Belafonte Police Department had not called with any new information. Where was Ray? Had he driven to Cleveland, Ohio to catch a baseball game and watch his favorite team, the Indians, play? He had done this in the past, after all, but never without telling Patty first. Patty, distraught and panicky, calls Ray's daughter in Washington State and informs her of her father's disappearance. Patty then calls the Belafonte Police Department for an update. Over at the station house, law enforcement got into gear fast. This was a high-profile member of the community, after all, well-known and well-liked. Investigator Darrell Corelli is assigned to the case, and immediately he gets to work. At 11.30 a.m., he sends out a BOLO, which stands to be on the lookout, to all surrounding counties for Ray and his red Mini Cooper. He then initiates air and ground searches alongside Highway 92, stretching from Bellefonte to Madisonburg, looking for Ray. At the same time, investigators swarm the courthouse where Ray worked, and armed with Ray's desktop computer passwords, and email passwords provided by Patty, they scour it for any information that might help. They find nothing. Courthouse surveillance tapes are reviewed, and the only image of Ray seen is him leaving work at the end of the day on Thursday. Again, this is no help. They then go to Ray and Patty's apartment, and with her permission, search Ray's home computer. The only thing they find unusual is multiple internet searches for ways to destroy a computer hard drive. They also find in the closet a box for software that guarantees to delete your hard drive permanently, but the software is gone. At this time, Patty informs the investigators that Ray's court-issued Micron laptop is missing. The laptop case is in a closet where it is normally stored, but the laptop itself is gone. She states that this is highly unusual since Ray always kept the laptop in its case when not in use. Then, a big break. On Sunday, State police locate Ray's car, the Red Mini Cooper, in a parking lot across from an antiques mall called the Street of Shops and close to a bridge overlooking the Susquehanna River. This is found in the nearby town of Lewisburg, about 50 miles east of Bellefonte. Now, remember what Ray had told Patty the last time she spoke with him? He said, quote, I'm on Highway 92 headed east towards Lewisburg. Strangely, Ray had told Patty two days prior where his car would be found. Also, this specific antique mall was well-known and frequented by both Patty and Ray. When investigators inspected Ray's car, they found it locked, with the cell phone turned off and lying on the seat. They proceeded to open the car to check for more clues and were immediately hit by a strong smell of tobacco. This was unusual, 
inasmuch as Ray was a vocal anti-smoker, and he definitely would never let anyone smoke in his car. Upon further investigation, the troopers also found a small amount of cigarette ash on the passenger side of the car. Now, this indicated to them that someone may have been smoking inside the car or leaning through the passenger window while smoking. Cigarette butts found near the car were sent for DNA analysis. And that was pretty much all the evidence found in or around the car. No sign of struggle, no blood stains, and no damage to the car itself. What was also interesting was that Ray's missing laptop was also not found. The state police had Ray's car towed to the Milton Police Garage for additional forensic analysis. Law enforcement begins to canvass the area and talk with local residents who may have seen Ray on Friday. They receive reports that Ray had been seen with a dark-haired woman in the shops in Lewisburg. They then check all local hotels and motels, speaking with possible witnesses and reviewing surveillance tapes. They find nothing. No Ray and no dark-haired woman. So, who is this mystery lady? We know it wasn't Patty, since she was at work all day. The witnesses recognized Ray from the photo they were shown, but they had never seen the woman before. They stated that they definitely were walking around together, but did not seem romantic, more like two friends having a stroll. Around the same time, word was getting out to Ray's extended family about his disappearance, and this immediately set off alarm bells for Ray's nephew, Tony. You see, Tony's dad, Roy, who was Ray's brother, had committed suicide 10 years earlier in May of 1996, and the events and locations surrounding his death were eerily similar to what investigators saw when arriving at the crime scene. Ray's brother Roy had been a career Air Force officer, who in 1996 had just retired from his duty station at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Roy had told his wife that he was going out to buy mulch, and he never returned. Two days later, his car was found abandoned in a parking lot near the Great Miami River in Ohio. Roy's body was then pulled from the river days later, and his death was officially ruled a suicide. Now, does this sound familiar? We have a missing man, a car found in a parking lot by a bridge overlooking a river, and no signs of foul play. You can see why Ray's nephew Tony was experiencing a terrible case of deja vu. Acting on this information, law enforcement scours the nearby river area using divers, boats, and sounding equipment. They use teams of searchers, investigators that blanket the area. They find nothing. Not a scrap of evidence, no footprints or fibers, no fingerprints on the bridge, no scuff marks where he may have jumped from, nothing. So they bring in the search dogs. Starting at the parking spot of the Mini Cooper, the dogs find no scent trails, not to the bridge, not to the water, not to anywhere. All they do is walk in circles around the place where the car was parked. This is normally an indication that they could smell Ray in the parking spot, but then his scent disappears. This is commonly caused by someone entering another vehicle and driving off. The second car prevents the dogs from tracking the scent any further. Again, the investigators are at a dead end. Yeah, it could be a suicide, but without a body and no additional evidence pointing in that direction, it remains just a theory. Also, at this time, the fingerprint analysis of the Mini Cooper comes back, and the results are, and I'm quoting the state police announcement, that no stranger prints were found whatever that means. So, the investigation hits a dead end. No new leads to pursue, no new evidence to analyze. The case goes cold for almost four months. Then, like a flash out of the blue, a clue. On January 30th, two fishermen find Ray's missing court-issued laptop 
underneath the bridge that overlooks the Susquehanna River. It was lodged against a concrete support. Now, upon further inspection, law enforcement find that the laptop's hard drive is missing. This is strange. Since to remove the hard drive on this model, one had to remove a Phillips set screw and manually pop out the drive. With the hard drive missing, investigators are right back at square one. And now they have a new mystery. Why would someone intentionally remove Ray's laptop hard drive and throw the laptop into the river? Once again, the case grows cold. On September 15th, with no new information, Belafonte police announced the results of a polygraph they had given earlier to Patty Fornicola and Ray's daughter, Lara. Both came back negative for deception, and they are officially cleared of involvement. Then on January 15th, Faith throws the Belafonte Police Department another bone. A mother and son, walking on the banks of the Susquehanna River, find the missing hard drive from Ray's laptop. It must have felt like Christmas in January for law enforcement. Finally, they could review Ray's hard drive and find out what he was up to before he disappeared. The Belafonte police have the hard drive sent to a professional forensic lab that had done work in the past for NASA to extract the data from the hard drive. And the results are, wait for it, nothing. No data can be extracted. The hard drive is totally corrupted. You see, exposure to the elements over the past eight months had rendered it useless. So much bad luck for the police department. Or maybe it was just really good planning, as we will see later. So again, the investigation hits a dead end and the trail runs cold. What happened to Ray? Most theories fall into one of three categories. The first theory, Ray committed suicide. He parked his car, took his laptop apart, threw both pieces into the Susquehanna River, and jumped in after them. Okay, it's possible, though we do have to ignore the fact that a full-grown man's body was never found in, and I quote, crystal clear water, even though a massive search was underway only days after he was reported missing. But a small laptop and even smaller hard drive are found months later by chance? The second theory, Ray met with foul play. Again, possible, but there is no evidence to support it. There was no sign of a struggle around or in the Mini Cooper. There has never been a credible report of any threat made to Ray or his family, and not a single witness mentioned seeing or hearing anything unusual the day of his disappearance, except for the appearance of that dark-haired woman. That leaves the third theory, and to me, the most likely theory, that Ray walked away by his own choice. What evidence is there to support this? Well, not much, at least on the surface. Ray had a seemingly happy life. He lived with his girlfriend, who by all accounts he really cared for. He was close with his daughter, and he was almost retired with a great pension. He lived in a nice, safe community and was in great health. He basically had the American dream, right? Well, maybe not. And this is where things begin to get dark. You see, back in 1998, seven years before he would disappear, Ray, in his position as district attorney for Center County, declined to press child sexual assault charges against a man named Jerry Sandusky. You may know who this person is, but if you are not familiar with the case, in a nutshell, Sandusky was a serial child abuser who ran a 30-year campaign of grooming and molestation against the underprivileged children of Center County. Using the cover of his charity, The Second Mile, he sexually assaulted hundreds of underage boys, all the while being paid and supported by Penn State University. As we will find out later, some of his actions took place with the full knowledge of football coach Joe Paterno and the Penn State administration. It wasn't until 2008, 
three years after Ray's disappearance, that this monster would finally be indicted by the Pennsylvania Attorney General. But back in 1998, Ray had a chance to put a stop to this horror 10 years earlier. He would have saved countless young men's lives from being destroyed. In fact, at the time, Detective Ronald Schaefer of the Belafonte Police had served up the case against Sandusky on a silver platter for Ray. In May of 1998, an 11-year-old boy returned home after an outing with Jerry Sandusky and his second mild charity. He informed his mom that Sandusky had groped him several times while showering and had placed his naked body against the boy's back for several minutes in the shower. The boy's mother immediately called the police. Detective Ronald Schaefer, who was assigned to the case, set up a sting operation to get Sandusky on tape admitting to the molestation. Detective Schaefer recorded a phone call where Sandusky admits he showered with the boy in question and other underage boys when the boy's mom tells Sandusky during the call that she will never let her boy anywhere near him again, he is heard to break down and cry, saying, I wish I were dead. And at no time during the call does Sandusky dispute any claims that were made by the boy. On June 1st, Jerry Lauro, an investigator with the Pennsylvania Department of Public Welfare, and Detective Schaefer met with Sandusky. In this meeting, Sandusky admits to touching the boys in the shower. Schaefer then interviews other boys who are at the same event, and they confirm that Sandusky was naked in the shower room with the boys, and he was witnessed touching many of them. Schaefer then takes all of these witness statements, along with the tape phone call, to Ray. Now, as the district attorney, it is up to Ray to begin a formal investigation into Sandusky. Ray thanks Detective Schaefer for the evidence, assures him he will review it, and will get back to him with his decision. The very next day, Ray has a meeting at Penn State. We know this because it is in Ray's official log of activities as DA. Ray does not indicate who he met or what was discussed. Now that in itself is unusual, as Ray is known for keeping meticulous notes. The next Monday, Ray calls Detective Schaefer to inform him, and this is a quote, no criminal charges are warranted. What? Is he kidding? I can only imagine what Detective Schaefer thought. Ray had a taped admission from Sandusky that he was inappropriate. He had multiple witness statements detailing what Sandusky had done and a record of him admitting his crimes in front of the detective and a state welfare investigator. Yet he still decided to do nothing. Ray did not even open an investigation. This is the same prosecutor that while he was a DA in Cleveland, he had successfully tried and convicted pedophiles with much less evidence. Yet now he declines charges? Does this have anything to do with this meeting at Penn State? And why would Penn State even care about Jerry Sandusky? Well, as it turned out, Penn State cared very much about Jerry Sandusky. What no one knew at the time was that Penn State had been receiving reports about Sandusky's inappropriate behavior towards boys for years now. Memos had been sent out detailing his actions to Sandusky's best friend and boss, Joe Paterno, the college president, Graham Spanner, the athletic director, Tim Curry, and the VP of Finance and Campus Police Chief, Jerry Schultz. These men would either ignore the memo or they would forward them on to Coach Paterno, who took no action. There are even witness conversations that Paterno told Sandusky to, quote, knock off the touching. It's like they didn't even care, and it was swept under the rug for 30 years, until in 2008, a witness came forward that worked directly under Paterno, whose testimony they could not just ignore. So why does this case have anything to do with Ray's disappearance? How does the case Ray declined to prosecute in 1998 link up to his actions in April of 2005? 
Well, I believe I can show a direct correlation between the Sandusky case and Ray's decision to disappear. In part two of this podcast, which will drop in a few days, I will lay out why, and maybe more importantly how, Ray was able to disappear and remain hidden even today. I believe there's a clear chain of events and evidence which can lead to only one conclusion, that Ray Grecar, mild-mannered district attorney of Center County, Pennsylvania, pulled off the greatest disappearing act since Harry Houdini. Thank you all so much for listening. The next episode should drop in a few days. Please visit my website at truecrimebreakdown.com. Please follow me on Twitter at TCBDpodcast. You can email me anytime with thoughts, show notes, or just to say hi at mail at truecrimebreakdown.com. Again, that's mail at truecrimebreakdown.com.